While much of the funding for rural hospitals comes through the federal government, state legislatures also play a key role in funding, supporting, and safeguarding their rural hospitals. So how do rural hospitals ensure their needs are prioritized in the state budget and through state law? With solid relationships, straightforward communication, and a clear understanding of their state legislature's role. I'm Rachel Lott. And I'm J.J. Hodshire. And this is Rural Health Rising. Welcome to Episode 76 of Rural Health Rising. I'm J.J. Hodshire, President and Chief Executive Officer of Hillsdale Hospital. And I'm Rachel Lott, Director of Marketing and Development. So, Rachel, we've often talked about federal funding and federal regulations And my goodness, do we ever have a challenge with both? Yes. Uh, How many federal audits, you know, can a hospital undergo in a given year? We'll just ask our skilled nursing facility and our hospital. But that's not what today's about. Evidently, there's not a limit. Absolutely. That's what we've learned. We've learned that. But we've also seen that state legislatures play an incredible role uh, in funding and sustaining rural hospitals. Uh, Even since the start of the pandemic, we've witnessed this as many federal dollars have been distributed and appropriated through the state of Michigan. uh, And that's been the pass-through. So they've had a, a very important role in the last year and a half. Yes, an increasingly important role. And we are talking to a return guest uh, this week for not his second, but third episode of Rural Health Rising. And I think you might be our third, our first person to be on for a third time. That's incredible. So eventually we're going to have to do, what do they do on SNL for like the Five Timers Club or whatever? Yeah, yeah. So uh, he'll be in the, he'll be in the life skit. He'll be in the life skit. I'm the Steve Martin of Rural Health Rising. Right, right. Yeah. Maybe John Belushi. I, you look more like him. No, but Martin was a host. Belushi was a cast member. You're, see, you know yeah. much more about SNL. I was going to say I, Dan Aykroyd. He's in that club too, really? right? The Five Timers? I think so. Yeah, oh but he goodness. was also a cast member to start. Oh, see? true. And then Martin, back, Martin, so. Martin was never a cast member, I think. Host oh, only. Oh, wow. A little wow. bit like Dana Carvey. You can do a little George Bush impression, right? Yeah, Wendy Craden. Also a Lutheran, yeah. Luther, there you go. Yeah. So that's good. I'm Baptist. All right. Wow. Well, hey, we did yeah. accomplish that, Rachel. JJ loves the George W. Bush impression. <laughs> uh, I have a great picture of him doing that. And it Lansing is good. last week, I'll show it to you. You'll All love right. it. It is. Um, good. So, with that, uh, <laughs> now that we've kind of given it away, I guess, JJ, would you like to officially introduce that's our guest right. for those who've not uh, guessed so far who this is? That's right. Rachel, our guest today, is State Representative Andrew Fink serving. Now, it's no longer District 58, right? Well, I'm still serving my first term, so I do still okay. serve District 58, okay. but the, the new district, which I uh, hope to serve uh, beginning January 1st, is the 35th district. All right. Very good. Mm-hmm. So 58th now, 35th in the future, and welcome back. It's great to have you on the, the uh, podcast. Thanks. Great to be back. So if none of that was confusing, right? Um so, uh, and that was, that little noise was uh, Representative Fink knocking on wood. I don't know that you need to knock on wood, but that's what that was <laughs> that's for right. our he listeners. That's right. He doesn't need to knock yes. on wood. Um, so to start, for those who uh, maybe did not hear you on your first or second appearance of Rural Health Rising, or those who did and need a little reintroduction, why don't you give us a quick, brief um, introduction of your background and your work at the State House? Yeah, well, I grew up in Southeast Michigan in Ypsilanti, and I came out this direction to go to Hillsdale College when I was 18. Um after that, I worked for our congressman, Tim Wahlberg, on his first successful race, which I'm sure we've mentioned before is how J.J. and I got to know one another. Yes, we did. Mm-hmm. Um, I went to law school at Michigan, and while I was there, I got married, and we started a family, and I joined the Marine Corps. So my first job after law school was back in Hillsdale at the college for a little while. Then I was on active duty in the Marines. Uh, when I got out, I came back to Michigan, was practicing law with my family, and I opened up my own uh, kind of branch of our law firm here in Hillsdale about five years ago. Um, and 
after three years of doing that, I decided to run for the state house. And so I'm in my first term, but I'm coming towards the end of it. Mm -hmm. Um, I serve on the health policy committee uh, and a bunch of appropriation subcommittees, including um, uh, health and human services, which is by far the largest portion of the state budget of any of the uh, individual subcommittees. And uh, my wife and I met at Hillsdale at the college. Uh, and we've got uh, five kids and live a little outside of Hillsdale now, a little outside the city on uh, on a little bit of acreage, uh, and uh, enjoy you know the the lifestyle and the friends and the community that we have here in Hillsdale. You know, we uh, often ask an important question, and we ask the why. Why do you do what you do? Why do you get up in the morning and do the things that you do? So, Andrew Fink, what is your why? What motivates you? What gets you up out of bed in the morning? Yeah, I, I'm sure that when I've answered this question for you before, I've mentioned just having the five the five children that I have, and uh, and watching my friends who have who have kids that they're trying to raise, and um, thinking about what it means to kind of be stewards of our community and of our culture mm-hmm. and uh, our constitutional republic. Mm-hmm. Uh, in order to sort of hand it over to the next generation better than we found it, which, to be honest, not not all that many American generations have been able to pull off, uh, with some important exceptions. The the easier thing to do is to kind of let things sort of carry on. Mm-hmm. Um, and when you don't think you're heading in the right direction, uh, whether it's fast or slow, you know, eventually you're going to need to make a course correction. And so that's sort of what got me interested in getting into politics now, is sort of thinking that the overall direction of, uh, of our politics had gotten to be um, stagnant in some ways and heading in the wrong direction in some ways, especially economically, uh, as well as the uh, kind of social issues that tie mm-hmm. our communities together. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's what got me going. And it's when I am focused on those things, I think that I'm at my best as a, as a legislator now. Well, I want to commend you because it is a noble why. Uh, obviously, you had a very successful law firm uh, and could have stayed doing that. Uh, and that would have done very well for you and your family. But you chose a life of public service. And uh, the example that you set for your children in this community is is very remarkable. You're not doing it ego. If they know you, everyone knows you're not an ego guy. You know, you're here today in shorts and a t-shirt. And that's just who you are. You're, you're you know, honorable. You're out in the community. You mix it up well. Uh, no pretentious uh, attitudes. And so I want to commend you for really connecting in Hillsdale, as you have. Uh, it's different when we were students, right, at the college. Yeah. And then you come off the hill, and then you face the realities of, of, of Hillsdale and the challenges. It's nothing like the Hill and nothing against the Hill. Um, but, you know, we were kind of segregated up there to a certain extent and isolated. And so um, you've done very well uh, since your days of loving Hillsdale and a Michigander uh, at acclimating to Hillsdale County. And I want to commend you for that. It's it's tough sometimes. So it's, it's not easy coming in from the outside, but you've done it remarkably well. Yeah, I think that's a that's a good point that it's uh, not. I mean, and I don't think it's probably unique to Hillsdale. You hear about kind of town and gown relationships yeah. uh, everywhere. Yeah. Uh, but I I'm blessed to be able to say I think back on my time in college and I 
attended church at St. Paul's where I go to yeah, church now. That's Dan right. Johnson, who's the, the pastor, yeah. lives you know half That's a block true. from where we're sitting right now. Yeah. Uh, when I was sick, I went to the to the college health center. Well, who took care of me there? Doctor Kimball. Yeah. Lives even closer. That's right. <laughs> where yeah. we are right, right down now. the road. Yeah. Houses. And these these you know yeah. fixtures in our community that I got to know there. And and I do think that being on the congressman's campaign, mm-hmm. he wasn't the congressman at the time, right? That was right. his first successful right. campaign for for Congress, yeah. but. You know, getting to know uh, the Hodshire family, yeah. the Lininger family. Gary Lininger was yeah. the, the, the oh, yeah. county treasurer back oh, then. Yeah. Ken Kurtz, who was one of my predecessors oh, now, uh, but was running the funeral yeah. home in town back then. Rick Malloy, Pastor, yeah, right, right, all Rick those Malloy. guys. Yeah. So just all these people and, and getting the opportunity uh, way back then when I still was a 20-year-old kid. You were 20, man. Um, I was the old guy then. Yeah. <laughs> I still am. Vin? That helped. Uh, I know, said so. That that sort of helped me. Oh, I'm fired uh, by. Uh, <laughs> that helped me fall in love with the community. Yeah, you're right. The college is famous. People know about the yeah. college all over the place. Yeah. And they take the online classes, and yeah. they've gotten some of that mm-hmm. college experience, the substance that you that you mm-hmm. can dip into there. Mm-hmm. And that is that is all great. But living in the community is great yeah. too. And and the college is a part of what makes the community great. But there's a lot more to Hillsdale County. Now you met your wife there. Yes. Well, that's like the most important thing. Yeah, absolutely. That would have made it worth it all, all by itself. Yeah. yeah. I just wanted to throw that in there. Yeah. So I'll get some brownie <laughs> points. Uh, and then children, you know, they are um, acclimated to our community. They go to school here, involved in activities here. I know they're involved in the church. So uh, very good, well-rounded. And I had the pleasure of seeing your dad again. Not too long ago, he attended a church service, and oh, yeah, uh, yeah. your dad, your dad is a good man as well. So it's great to have you, obviously, in our county representing us. Um, I'm very proud of you and what you've done so far, and look forward to uh, what we have ahead of us. So, Rachel, I'm going to let you ask that first question. Yes. So let's start with um, a little bit of understanding for you know, obviously, it's different in every state, um, but here in Michigan, what if we're if we talk about funding? There, I think some other issues we're going to go over today as well, but um, there, there's some recent appropriations in Michigan that have impacted hospitals. So let's start a little bit with funding. What authority does the state legislature have when it comes to the state budget, and in what way are, is that able to be used to support rural hospitals in general? Well, there are there's a sense in which I mean the legislature is the authority for the state budget. Um, spending has to be appropriated by the legislature. Right. Uh, but there are other senses in which, especially in the healthcare case, in, in the in the healthcare area, you know, area of, of health health spending, mm-hmm. uh, that the legislature's authority is limited by the fact that some of the money that we're talking about spending are what are referred to as pass through dollars, where the right. federal government's yeah. appropriated dollars to um, to the state uh, for the purpose of funding of, of doing basically Medicare Medicaid mm-hmm. reimbursements, mm-hmm. and uh, uh, the. I guess Medicaid reimbursements being the main, the major feature there, um, uh, and the state has some influence over uh, how to kind of uh, divide that money up. Mm-hmm. Um, but generally, what that money's for is is given to you by the federal government, right. uh, with varying kind of degrees of mm-hmm. of, uh, of strictness in the in the boundaries. An example of where we have some influence anyway would be in the last couple of years, we've um, increased the uh, reimbursement rates for um, like home health, you know, nurses mm-hmm. that come to your house. I don't mm-hmm. remember what the figures were, but we, you know, say we took the reimbursement rate from 19 an hour to 22 an hour or something like that. Not a huge increase, but a meaningful one, especially at the scale that you're talking about. Right. Um, and that 
is re- that was responsive, I think, to the overall nursing shortage that we have in Michigan, probably other places, but mm-hmm. certainly in Michigan. Um, and so that's, that was a place where the source of the funding, I mean, we're talking about Medicaid reimbursements either way. Uh, so those are those are gen- basically federal pass-through dollars um, that, that were influencing, mm-hmm. uh, but we had some you know discretion there. So that's that's I think a good example of kind of the in in the normal course of business, you know, making some adjustments to what the what the reimbursements are going to be for a given service. We have some influence there. You know, Representative Fink, let's talk about the state's role specifically as it relates to rural hospitals. Okay. And funding and or supporting those rural hospitals, which when we say supporting financially, that's the most critical thing that the state can do. Uh, So you've just passed two supplemental bills uh, in the past six months, uh, one in June and one a week ago. Uh, The June appropriations included a safety net, um, so to speak, uh, for a couple rural hospitals. And I'm not going to name them because I'm not here to target them. Uh, but it basically helps them keep their doors open and one through the end of the year and one a little more long term. Uh, and obviously, a lot of questions and a lot of surface during that period. Um, how is that funding support decided on? In other words, are you getting lobbied? You know, is someone saying, hey, these folks, if they don't have health care in those respective communities, you know, hundreds of people are going to die. I'm, I'm not sure how that lobbying takes place. But uh, and then I, I guess how does that fit into the state legislature's role? You know, because then the question is, all right, are you in the healthcare business? Uh, what is it that you're doing? Is it the free market economy that should be regulating this? Could you give us a little glimpse into that? You know, there's been at least three that I know of hospitals that secured funding. Yeah. Uh, in the cases that you're talking about from this past year, I did not. I was not uh, involved in in the conversations to allocate those dollars. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they made their way into the budget. I would presume through conversations with the chair of the DHHS mm-hmm. Approves Committee, Chair Whiteford, uh, chair of the Approves Committee at the time, uh, Chair Albert. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, or it just happened on the Senate side and wound up in the in the bill through the, through those uh, negotiations. Mm-hmm. Um, but the you know the, that's that's generally the process is that they're going to come to the to the chairs of those budgets and uh, and make their pitch there. Mm-hmm. But it's not an ideal system. So I mean, what your question is, you know, is this uh, is that a free market response? Well, no. But the healthcare economy overall is probably the most regulated. It's comparable, at least, to banks and, yeah. and you know investment institutions, and that is it's very closely watched. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, a reason for that is, among other things, people think of it as obviously extremely important. Mm-hmm. You know, mortgage companies are also heavily regulated. Stuff that we sort of think is as uh, really fundamental to a person's life is often uh, among the most regulated. And you also have the problem in healthcare of uh, consumers never being able to really even out the um, information disadvantage that they have with providers. There's, mm-hmm. you know, even if you want to question what your doctor is telling you, you usually do it by going to another doctor. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, most people don't trust their own ability to to school up, you know, very quickly on a medical question. Uh, so if they even if they think they disagree with their doctor, they usually do it do it by asking other experts mm-hmm. in the field. And so you have this problem of uh, of 
patients thinking that this is very important, government thinking that it's very important, but the patients not being in, um, you seldom having the most information about the, si the situation, which is different from like, you know, somebody, uh, you know, providing a service that you're more or less capable of determining, you know, you buy milk at the store, you know, if it's sour. Mm -hmm. um, right. It's not the same way with, with healthcare decisions. Mm -hmm. And of course, you know the body is trickier than a jug of milk, so right. not nobody really knows as much about it as uh, mm -hmm. as as you do other things. But I do think that that's part of why it's such a yeah. uh, a regulated industry. Right. Um, but the the granting of dollars directly to a hospital to keep it open should it should be obvious to us. I think that that's not a long term solution. Correct. Essentially, right. if you're going to do that, the state should just own the hospital. Which yeah. you know there is such a thing as as government hospitals, but that's uh, if that's not your plan, then right. that's probably not what you want to do long term. Right. So as I think you know, um, we we've introduced uh, legislation. I introduced a bill uh, to allow Michigan hospitals to become rural emergency hospitals, yes. which is a new federal designation. And, you know, this is part of this regulatory system that we're in. Yep. Uh, but essentially the rural emergency hospital, the function there is that the hospital would cease being a long-term inpatient uh, kind of facility. Mm -hmm. uh, they've got to keep their average census under 24 hours. Mm -hmm. um, and if they do that, then their reimbursement rates can go up by 5%. Um, and they don't have to, they're essentially allowed to decertify their, uh, their hospital beds. As you mm -hmm. know, you, you know, the state kind of keeps mm -hmm. track and the, and the federal government they cares, do. you know, yeah. how many beds are available oh, where. Sure. And so we had to make some, we have to make some, I, I'm saying we had to, I introduced the legislation is not yes, yet you passed, right. uh, but we have to make those designations, uh, available if the emergency services are going to remain available in those areas. Mm -hmm. I think most people would say I'd like to live within, you know, say 30 minutes of a full-service hospital, right. even a small one, a rural one. Sure. Um, but if that's not possible, certainly you'd prefer to have the emergency services available to you relatively close by. Right. Um, with the knowledge that one of these hospitals does have a uh, relationship with a higher-level trauma center mm -hmm. uh, to, to get people to if it is if it exceeds their capabilities, which right. it mm -hmm. might. That's already an issue, obviously, right. if you're a smaller hospital. Right. So. That's that's a way in which we can kind of be responsive to the needs mm -hmm. of, the, of rural areas, make sure that the folks that live near one of those hospitals that just doesn't have a path to profitability mm -hmm. uh, as a full-service hospital main, you know, maintains a presence in the area, uh, allowing their citizens mm -hmm. to feel that if there is an emergency around them, yeah. they'll be able to be taken care of. Yeah, and it's not mm -hmm. for everybody, obviously. Right. It's not going to be for Hillsdale because we're a full-service hospital doing very well. Um, mm -hmm. But the option for some of these hospitals, and we think there may be a few in the state that would actually transfer over to this, uh, I think is remarkable. It sustains that hospital and that community. Uh, you know, we say time is tissue. Uh, the patient can quickly get to the hospital for that emergent care. It can be seen by a, a trauma surgeon, whatever it is. Um, but, you know, your leadership is much appreciated by hospitals in Michigan, as well as the Michigan Hospital Association. They're very complimentary of your introduction of this and so on behalf of them as a board member, uh, I wish to express our gratitude for the work that you've done and championing this because it's important. Mm -hmm. uh, and to have rural health care in those local communities that you serve, I think, is critical. Now, the I guess the good news is that none of the appropriations have benefited our hospitals and your respective communities. Uh, and 
this rural hospital designation probably won't. So the the goal is you're doing it truly from a perspective of caring about the rural community. And I think that's, I want to applaud you for that because it's not just about, well, I can get some votes out of this. It's not at all what you've done because it really doesn't apply to us. And so thank you and congratulations on the work that you've done with that. Well, and I was going to ask what, what brought this to your attention? I mean, because this isn't your district, um, well, I guess the the hospitals in your district um, would not be affected by this. There's probably only what we think maybe two hospitals in Michigan that would transition to this um, designation. The the primary one we know of is not in your district. So, um, what made you want to to bring this particular bill forward? What got you interested in that? Well, that's a good point. I mean, I do hope that in my dist- that in my district the full-service hospitals we have don't look at this as a direction that they mm-hmm. want to go because I want, right. you know, I, I don't want that to happen. I, I don't want to, I don't want our hospitals to be limited to 24 hours uh, of care for, mm-hmm. for folks. Yeah. Um, if we can provide a service locally, people are happier there. I mean, we, you know, we right. even think that about uh, the more services we can be providing in, at home, you know, the longer you can keep, say, an aging person at home, we think mm-hmm. people are happier. Extend that kind of metaphor to your local hospital. I think it remains true. Um, so you're right. I hope that my local hospitals don't take advantage of this because they are – they have that path to profitability, which means, you know, sustainability here. Mm-hmm. Um, but my – the uh, the chair of our health policy committee, Chair Colley, is the one who, who kind of put this mm-hmm. on my radar. She's been on the podcast. You can go look for her episode. <laughs> yeah, she's – she and in fact, I, I hope to succeed her as a representative for a very small portion of Lenawee yes, County. She, she has most yeah. of Lenawee County now. Yeah. Um, and uh, and the, the district I'm running in uh, going forward includes a small portion of Lenawee County, the city of Hudson. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And uh, and so it's been nice to be on a committee chaired by one of my immediate neighbors, the neighbor to my east. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so she and I have a great relationship. And she suggested that I take a look at this issue as a member of the health policy committee from an, a very rural part of the state. I have arguably the most rural district in southern Michigan. Mm-hmm. Uh, the nor- northern Michigan districts are even larger, but I've mm-hmm. got a very expansive district and, and, uh, and you know, it takes a while to get across it. And mm-hmm. so these, the issue of, of a spread out population, that's acutely felt here on this issue and others. Sure. Um, and so I, I looked at myself as a good advocate for this because although I don't want my local hospitals to bear this, you know, to, to go this direction, what I do want is for our policy to always be responsive to the differences between, say, rural communities and urban communities yeah. or especially rural communities and suburban communities mm-hmm. where I think people sort of think if you're in the city, then it's one way. If you're not, it's another way. Well, there's mm-hmm. a lot of a lot of nuance there. Yeah. And I mean, uh, that that's kind of that, – that's a – sort of a beat of mine. Um, you know, another issue, I, I bet I've used this example before, but I just think it's really a good one because it, it just brings the whole thing into stark relief. We, we've uh, done some funding in the last year in a couple of different ways. We tried to do it. It's not out the door yet, I don't think, but to, uh, to increase the uh, funding for school resource officers. Mm-hmm. So these are police officers in our schools. Yeah, right about that. Yeah. So if you are in a large suburban, you know, if you're in Oakland County or probably, uh, you know, Portage or someplace, uh, you likely already have a one police officer whose point and place of duty on an average day is in the high school. Mm-hmm. That's a very common arrangement, and I think yep. it's generally a productive arrangement. Mm-hmm. Uh, builds some relationships, maybe helps keep, keep some kids who you know could, are sort of facing a crossroads when they're in high school of what direction they're going to take their lives. I think it provides some opportunity there. Mm-hmm. I, I support that concept. I think it's great. 
Uh, but it's not realistic that Camden Frontier, which the the metaphor here is uh, if you play eight-man football, you probably don't have the budget for a school resource officer to be in your school full-time. Right. Yeah. All right. You're probably too small of a district. And there are 13 uh, school districts, I think, that who's, who's you know, superintendent works in my district. That doesn't yeah. even include the fact that like Addison and Columbia right. and whatever else aren't even in my district, but mm-hmm. some of the kids are. So we're talking about a, a lot of of small districts here. Mm-hmm. How are those districts going to take advantage of the, of the funding on an unequal footing? I mean, uh, it won't be the exact same way, but there's got to be an answer to how Camden Frontier and Waldron and Union City and Litchfield are going to benefit similarly mm-hmm. from those appropriations uh, to Portage, which again, where it's very simple. Right. What would we do there? Well, we'd pay for part of the school resource officer right. we already have. All right, well, what's it going to look like in, in Waldron? That's a good question. Yeah. It might, right. might be that we're going to have to put in, um, we're going to have to treat the whole, you know, a handful of schools in the county as sort of one entity here right. when right. they're looking for, for to, to make a grant application yeah. mm-hmm. uh, so that, you know, the sheriff's department One might guy's be able to patrol in four or five districts. Right. Yeah, maybe yeah. have a deputy who's who's trying to do two hours a day at four districts. Yeah. That would make mm-hmm. some sense. It's All not right. honestly, it's not as good. But then again, this is the reality we're living in. The, 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 we're spread out. Our population mm-hmm. is lower. How are we going to take advantage of this? So anyway, that's a long way of of saying, yeah, this doesn't apply to my district today. But if you're talking about issues of 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 being a voice for rural Michigan. It doesn't need to be directly in my district for me to say this is very important to me. It's very important mm-hmm. that we have strong mm-hmm. voices uh, underscoring what how important it is to support our rural communities, our smaller towns, our you know our places where you know I've got townships in my district of fewer than a thousand people, but those people are citizens of Michigan every bit as much as as somebody living mm-hmm. in a city of a hundred thousand. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. Uh, making sure that that those that those considerations are present on this and every issue. That's That's really important for me. That's a great analogy. It really is. Well, and also some of that, you know, money we were talking about that was appropriated to one of these hospitals in particular that essentially said we need a bridge until the rural emergency hospital designation goes into effect federally January 1st. Um, But without this bill that you've put forward in the state of Michigan, they wouldn't even be able to do that. So it really has to go hand in hand with that funding um, that was appropriated. Mm -hmm. Um, But let's talk about, you've alluded to this a little bit, but there've been some redistricting, uh, some differences in the maps lately (laughs) um, for the state of Michigan. How does that affect the state legislature? How does that affect how the two houses work together? How does that affect how constituents engage with their representatives? Well, that's a really good question. So the the short answer is... um, it will degrade all of those relationships unless uh, the elected officials, the, the, legis- the legislators, are diligent. Mm-hmm. Um, and even if, and even then, uh, I am concerned that even a diligent member in a given case will suffer. You know, will will struggle to be as attentive to their dis- to their to their relationships in their districts as they would be with um, uh, smaller. Uh, uh, numbers of, you know, municipalities involved. Mm-hmm. So just by way of example, uh, I've got a colleague uh, up north whose current district is contained within one county. Mm-hmm. His new district has parts of seven counties. Wow. So today, if there's an issue that, that affects sheriff's departments, 
uh, or road commissions or anything that, that where the policy is primarily carried out at the county level. He's got one relationship or one set of relationships, mm-hmm. you know, in the case right. of the road commission or county commission or whatever, one set of relationships there. Mm-hmm. Um, how much more, you know, how much less uh, able will he be to manage those relationships when it's parts of seven counties? Right. You know, a diligent guy will still struggle uh, to be to have seven relationships as good as the one. The one, you know? sure. In my case, um, I have two full counties right now, and that's pretty manageable. I can't. I'm not complaining about having two full counties. In fact, it's it's kind of ideal. The counties are the same size. I think this is. I'm sure I've said this on this podcast before. I got the best district in the state. Of course, right. every member says that, but I can explain <laughs> why. I mean, I've got the entire tri county area. You yeah. know, Ohio, Indiana, meet in my district. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, at, at, at the edge of my district, I've got two counties that are very similar in a lot of demographic ways. Uh, uh, city of Coldwater, slightly larger than Hills, though. But basically, you're talking about counties of around forty to forty-five thousand people surrounding mm-hmm. a city of around ten thousand people. A couple of smaller cities. Uh, US twelve goes through the entire district. You know, from stem to stern. Um, there are there are distinctions between the two places, the two counties that I represent now, but there are a lot of similarities that make yes. it that, that make it um, simple for me to conceive of my district. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the only change to my district is the addition of the city of Hudson. The city of Hudson is very similar in size to say Bronson uh, or Jonesville, right? Um, right. And demographically, uh, in terms of income and uh, and what the workforce is like, and you know the the it being a small city nestled among a rural you know area, all of that is consistent with the district I have now. So it doesn't raise any concerns. What might is the fact that it's in a different county. Mm-hmm. And right. so it's just a tiny adjustment to my district, but it, it means I have, th- you know, three prosecutor's offices to be in touch with uh, or three, again, county commissions or three, you know, political parties mm-hmm. or whatever it is. Whatever whatever you do at the county level, now I've got three. Well, and if you look at these Senate districts where, um, you know, maybe today our state Senate district has three counties and now Hillsdale County is in two different Senate districts. That that means that not only do those members of the Senate, well, they have to be diligent, but those of us who live here in Hillsdale County, when we, you know, when we're dealing with an issue uh, that that the state legislature uh, uh, impacts. Mm-hmm. It's still just me, or I, I hope it'll just be me, but it'll still <laughs> just be one state representative, right. Right? right? But it's now two senators. Correct. So it actually creates more work for the locals as well. Yeah. So mm-hmm. I, I, those are my concerns about the way that this all shook out. And I guess the, 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 like maybe I should set the table here and say that this is the first time that districts have been designed uh, not by the legislature itself, but by this independent citizens redistricting. Yeah. You know, and oh, so mm-hmm. um, I think that uh, it, it being in the hands of the legislature, like what were the concerns before? Well, that it's political, that mm-hmm. you're doing it all to protect incumbents. Right. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, fine. I can conceive of all those complaints. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't support the creation of the uh, Independent Redistricting Commission, mm-hmm. but the voters the voters voted it in. One of the downsides that I don't think got talked about a lot was the lack of experience as a legislator means you don't necessarily understand what I just what right. I just said. The if mechanics of how the districts yeah. function. Yeah. If you haven't lived through it, then you don't necessarily no know what it's like to say, well, all right, we got this bill that affects county clerks. I have two phone calls to make. Yeah. Right. If you it, and this easily could have happened to me, I could easily enough have a district that had part of Calhoun County, part of Jackson County, mm-hmm. a sliver of, of Washington oh, yeah. County, and you know eight townships in. You're Monterey making County. five. You're making five calls. Am I <laughs> right. going to make those five calls? No. 
I mean, I would try to. But right? it's impossible right. but it, because there's 12 other issues. You know it's going to happen less yeah. often. It's yeah. just, yeah. A, yeah, there's only so many hours 30 in day. superintendents and you name it. Right. Yeah, exactly yeah. right. So that is my concern with our new districts. Right. I happen to think that we're going to have very diligent representation from our senators here mm-hmm. D- mm-hmm. based on who I expect them to be. Um, again, my own district, like I'm not one of the people paying the price all that highly. But mm-hmm. I am concerned that that it's going to take some time here for whether you're a, a small, non, a rural nonprofit like you, you we are sitting in the, yeah. the walls of here right. uh, or a county government uh, itself uh, or in some cases even local governments that got mm-hmm. divided. You know, it's one true. precinct of, of such and such township oh, yeah. is in this district and, yeah. and the mm-hmm. other four precincts are in another. Yeah. Uh, I do I do have concerns that it's going to take some getting used to to get some patterns built up and and uh, and people are going to it's there's going to be a transaction cost here of mm-hmm. of uh, of settling in. Yeah. Right. So again, I just think that the the watchword here is to be diligent yeah. both as the mm-hmm. constituent and as the member. You're going to have to be intentional about keeping those relationships strong mm-hmm. if you're going to be in the kind of communication with the the local entities in your district mm-hmm. that are affected by your legislation every day. Mm-hmm. You know, that's that's what I think the lesson is here. Yeah. So for for other um, maybe folks who are listening to this, if, if they're seeing something similar happen um, in their state legislatures or, you know, in a scenario like this where you're going to have more demands on you now uh, because you have more – to, to your point, more um, individuals to serve or more entities within your district to serve. Um, so with that in mind, how do the rural hospital folks like us, because mm-hmm. we are selfish and care about us right now, yeah. um, make sure that we keep the attention of our legislators when they're being spread more thinly than maybe they were before? So that's a great question because you're, you're – um there are other states that have adopted similar models, and it's a popular concept. Mm-hmm. Um, and just, I guess, just to kind of complete my critique of it uh, at the highest level, you cannot take the politics out of politics. Everyone should stop trying. But yeah. mm-hmm. if it's going to happen, um, among the standards that your redistricting, redistricting commission uses in, in Michigan, uh, ge- political geography, you know, existing political uh, subdivision lines mm-hmm. is a factor, but it's like fifth or something mm-hmm. on the list. Um, and, uh, it should be more clear that, that your that the preference, um, with some kind of, uh, heightened standard here should be to, to maintain the integrity of political subdivision lines now. Mm-hmm. People live in these communities. Um, you know, the term in Michigan that, that's been used is communities of interest. Well, I will, I will just say that I think that that counties create communities of interest. People get used to living in the same districts, same school districts, same county commission districts, knowing, you know, same townships, whatever, knowing their neighbors uh, have similar, uh, you know, uh, concerns to them. You want to minimize the times when a neighbor uh, is surprised to find out that, you know, I'm in this district and you're not. What is, you know, we live right, right. by each other. You want to, yeah. you know, at least using a county line, nobody's surprised by that because you already mm-hmm. have a different sheriff. You already have a different commission. Mm-hmm. You already have, you know, different expectations about a lot of things, probably different school districts, whatever. Mm-hmm. So I would say that, you know, make sure that political subdivisions are a part of any conversation. If you were going to shift away from the legislature doing the maps, which I don't really think you should, but even if you were going to, certainly you should maintain some of what's been a normal part of that process. And that's not, it's not designed to be political. It's just designed to be uh, reflective of community values, be, you know, being represented. Right. Uh, that's what representative government's supposed to be like. And then secondly, uh, it's actually not just a rural issue. So right. if you yeah. look at the the city of Detroit, you mm-hmm. know, right now, I think there's, oh, I don't know, six or seven districts that are all or almost all in the city of Detroit. Mm-hmm. 
Um, and there are now, I don't remember the number, but it's like 15 or partially in the city of Detroit. Well, mm-hmm. I, I think that the a concern there, I mean, I know it is. There were, there, was lawsuits, there were lawsuits filed over it, at least one. A concern there is that the voice of Detroit, which also has unique interests in our state, uh, in some cases actually probably more similar to rural areas than people realize, and in mm-hmm. other cases very different, mm-hmm. but still unique compared to the surrounding area. You know, I often say that there's almost like a... Um, it's almost like the suburbs form a, a sort of a wall on both sides. That's like of, Texas. Austin's the blueberry and the tomato soup. It's like uh, a very clear <laughs> differentiation at one point that you see there is a difference in kind of a close geographic area. Yeah, and I, but I guess in this in this case, Rachel, what I'm saying isn't so much that the political uh, preferences. I mean, I'm not I'm not naive to the fact that Detroit and my area vote very differently, mm-hmm. almost as differently as possible, but. The pressures on the people, okay, of of, right. of of rural areas that are not part of the, uh, not not by and large part of the most uh, rapid development of the modern economy. Mm-hmm. You got this. You got similar issues in the aging cities in the mm-hmm. Rust Belt. Okay, mm-hmm. so that's not mm-hmm. unique to Detroit and Michigan. I would say the same thing is happening in Buffalo or has happened in Buffalo, uh, and probably Cleveland and Milwaukee and other cities that that are considered by a lot of folks to be kind of past their prime. Well, there's still hundreds of thousands of people living there. Yeah. And they often feel that they're being left behind and diminishing their political representation or making it harder for them to count on their representatives because they're now also representing, you know, just as many people in a suburban city. Well, that sounds a lot like what I'm saying about rural areas right now to me. Yeah, you're diluting their voice in a way. Yeah, so I would not sell short the the concern that I'm raising about representation Mm -hmm. in rural areas. There are actually versions of that happening in uh, traditionally urban areas too. Mm -hmm. And in both cases, what you have, I think, is a concern that that the, the way of life that has been handed down um, is not cared about by the folks who don't need it, all right? Mm. People in, in, in um, affluent suburbs, um, I think the perception, and I share it, uh, from uh, rural areas in our state and very urban areas in our state is that those folks don't need uh, to think about, they don't have the same level of concern, they're going to be fine either way on a given question. Yeah. And uh, and so I, there's actually there's yes there is kind of an urban rural divide and oftentimes it, sure. it puts us at, at odds uh, with folks yeah no doubt uh, but in in another sense there's actually a, a commonality uh, between say all blue collar areas of the state mm-hmm. where uh, where the, the you know the concern is are we going to be left behind yeah. and that's when I talked all this all those things I said about uh, rural issues and and needing to be attentive to them. You know, you could give a version of that talk, I think, from a perspective, perspective. Of, of all essentially, say, uh, uh, you know, areas that are not on the cutting edge of the 21st century economy share a lot of the same, I think, mm-hmm. justified anxieties here. Right. And so if you're talking about, you know, how do we make sure that our small communities are represented? There's actually a surprise. I think that there, I don't know that everybody sees this, but there's there's a commonality, I think, in in. Uh, making sure that all voices that fear being underrepresented um, should share mm-hmm. uh, and attentive citizens in different environments would see that there's actually, you know, a concern. You, everybody should want all of us to have strong voices, the mm-hmm. small towns, the rural areas, you know, uh, uh, I think folks in, in, again, the kind of aging Rust Belt centers of our state, they should see that our voices are actually important to them because we actually wind up bearing a lot of the same concerns, a lot of the same burdens. 
Uh, so in in the context of the redistricting commission, I actually think that's who feels like they got the short on the stick most mm-hmm. frequently. And mm-hmm. I think there's some reason for that. Great commentary. Uh, and certainly we are grateful for your time here today. And the time has passed. Uh, and we could spend probably hours talking about these type of rule issues, but certainly your perspective is very important to us, not only because you represent us, uh, because what you have done recently in the legislature has proven that you care about Michigan and you care about rural communities, not just Hillsdale branch, parts of Lenaway, but you care about all of them. And I want to thank you for your contribution to our community and to the state of Michigan and for your steadfast commitment to rural health uh, and for advocating for the right thing. So Representative Fink, thank you for joining us. We're hopeful to say that you'll be with us a fourth time in the future, but thank you for joining Rural Health Rising. Well, thanks for having me on. And before we close today, I do just want to give a special shout out to Kenji Ulmer, our audio engineer. Uh, Kenji is getting married this Sunday. So uh, just as a very important part of our show, um, for those of you who uh, may or may not know, we quite literally could not put this podcast out every week without Kenji. Um, He edits the show for us. He makes sure that all the sound is good. He takes out the air conditioner in the background if it turns on at an inopportune time. Um, So really, without Kenji, this podcast would not exist. um, And we are very happy for him and very excited for him to be getting married and starting this next chapter of his life, Um, though Rural Health Rising will still, of course, be a part of it. So um, that is just our little note to say thank you uh, to Kenji for all of his hard work and also congratulations on your nuptials. Next time on Rural Health Rising, we'll have another great conversation with another great guest. So be sure to tune in. And with that, don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like what you hear, leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts and tell others why they should listen too. Your feedback helps more listeners find Rural Health Rising. And you can now find us on Twitter. I'm at Hillsdale CEO JJ. Rachel is at Rural Health Rach. And you can also follow the podcast at Rural Health Pod. Until next time, stay safe, stay healthy, and stay strong. Rural Health Rising is a production of Hillsdale Hospital in Hillsdale, Michigan, and a proud member of the Health Podcast Network. Hosted by J.J. Hodshire and Rachel Lott. Audio engineering and original music by Kenji Ulmer. Special thanks to today's guest, Michigan State Rep. Andrew Fink, serving District 58. For more episodes, interviews, and more information, visit ruralhealthrising.com.